Hey there, sports fans, and welcome back to another edition of Puckcast with Statsman and AJ Rotowire's Fantasy Hockey Show. Hello, friends. I'm Paul Bruno in Toronto, Ontario, and you can follow me at Statsman22. My co-host, as always, is AJ Schultz, a great follow at AJ Schultz24, based in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, near Rotowire headquarters over in Madison. We welcome you to this special episode, uh, second playoff edition, where we're going to review the first round results and we're going to preview the second round. And uh, before we get into the detail, I'm very happy to say that in the eight-year history of my involvement on this show, I'm super excited to talk about the fact that my Maple Leafs have finally advanced past the first round of, of uh, the playoffs. So this ep- episode is extra special to me. Of course, my partner, AG, is uh, a voted Penguins fan, and uh, they, he misses out on their playoff ride for obvious reasons. But AJ, I'm going to throw it to you and ask you your overall thoughts of round one without getting too specific just yet, because we're going to get into the details of each of the series, obviously. But I want to know your impressions of, of the first round of the playoffs. Well, I think the, the thing that stuck to me was how close, you know, all these series were. We only had one series that ended in five games. Uh, the others, uh, the others all went six or seven. We had three game sevens, I believe ton of overtime games and it just goes to show how close this really was you know one overtime result here or there and it potentially could have flipped uh the script on some of these series so um you know it was it was a tight one i think across the board even looking you know we'll get into it more but even looking at the vegas series uh they had game three went to overtime if, if that goes differently uh, obviously we would have gotten at least one more game out of that one and, and something there. So uh, yeah, that's, that, that is what I noticed is how close these series were. The fact that we only had one that was decided by five uh, or less. And so, yeah, that I, I think it's uh, speaks to the league as a whole and how good of a product we're seeing on the ice right now. And, you know, the disparity between top teams and the, let's see the eighth, the second wild card wasn't that big in, in too many of the prior years. Of course, this year, the Boston Bruins regular season uh, caused a bigger than normal gap between them and Florida. And lo and behold, there was the biggest upset of the first round in that series, obviously, and we'll get into that shortly. But I was struck by the number of this, the road teams actually had a better record than the home teams in the first round, AJ. That, that is something that we're not used to seeing. And, and it was part and parcel of, of the upsets that we did see in the first round. I mean, we're not seeing the president's trophy winners and we're not seeing the defending champs in the second round. So I, I know when we get into it, we're going to talk about how, how we, our, progno- our predictions went and, you know, neither one of us blew it out of the water, but I I'm here to tell you partner that I don't see anybody on the landscape that did even better than six and two in their first round picks uh, for what it's worth. I went five and three and you went two and six, and we're going to get into the details of all that shortly, but I don't think there's anybody out there that, that, uh, knocked it out of the park in terms of predictions because who was going to say that that Florida was going to beat the Bruins in the first round, for instance. I don't think there's anybody that I know that even contemplated that. But I really, I got to tell you, I really wanted to when we were on DraftKings to say, you know, that first round matchup looked like a scary one because of Florida's offense and their ability to skate. And, and uh, lo and behold, they pulled it off. But the Stanley Cup champs losing to a second-year outfit, not, nobody saw that coming either. So uh, that was a surprise. In any case, so the, the format today, we're going to knock around uh, the results in the first series, and then we're going to take a break and uh, preview the second round set. So without further ado, AJ, why don't you lead us off into your observations of the 
upset of Colorado by Seattle. We we both had Colorado winning in five. Of course, they went the distance, and Seattle won it in seven. They want they scored the first goal in every game, which is a real anomaly too, and that was a big part of their success. But uh, I'll throw it to you. What are, what are your observations uh, of that series that you can recall? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know the biggest thing uh, that you point out early, Paul, is the the road. Uh, upsets here. Seattle came in on the road in in Colorado and won that first game. I think that's uh, telling. Seattle gets game four. They're they're playing at home, but that's one of those ones I talked about, an overtime game. If that goes the other way and Colorado is going back to to Colorado in game five up 3-1, that's a different game. Of course, Seattle wins game five, then Colorado wins game six. I mean, that series – barely had any any home wins uh so yeah i think uh everything we just highlighted was on you know evident in that one really oh i think overly dependent on miko rantanen seven goals in those seven games the next closest was three uh both nathan mckinnon and uh, terry lekinen had three uh, obviously losing cal mccarr for a game doesn't help uh val nachushkin being gone away from the team uh for for all but the first two games in that that series. So uh, I really think that probably didn't help. Uh, those are all the reasons I see that Colorado lost. Of course, Seattle, um, not as dependent. You look at their goal scoring, nobody had more than two goals, but you've got, uh, you've got 15 players scoring a goal for, uh, for the Kraken here. So they weren't overly tied to any one person. They were able to, to spread it out here. Uh, and and they looked they looked really good uh, for for the most part. Obviously, Jared McCann, that injury uh, absence didn't help anything. We'll see if I haven't seen anything about whether or not he'll be able to go tonight. Uh, I'm guessing probably no, but we'll see. Uh, so they've got some injuries to overcome as they move forward. But uh, we'll talk more on that in a bit. Yeah, you know what? For me, it was the counterpunch mentality that these guys took on that uh, that Seattle decided they weren't going to try and get into shootouts with with Colorado when you look at the scores of this the games in this series I mean that reflects very clearly what they were trying to achieve there was only one game where uh, the over would have been hit let's say when in game three they combined for 10 goals Colorado won that game but every other one was three to one three to two four to one an outlier for Colorado to win so the nature of Seattle's plan really worked to a T all the games that they won were games where they didn't score more than three goals themselves, but they did limit Colorado to no more than two in any of those four games. And that, to me, was a shocker when you consider the high-octane nature of the top end of the Colorado roster. At the end of the day, we didn't talk probably enough about the fact they were missing Gabriel Landeskog, but it didn't seem like they would miss him uh, with all the other weapons here. But uh, too many of them were kept in check. And when you consider that even Nate McKinnon, only managed three goals in a seven-game series. That was something of a surprise to me, despite the fact he produced 40 shots on goal, far and away the leader in that category. And maybe that was a telling thing, too, because nobody else had more than 27 uh, with Miko Ranton. And below that, it was down into the low 20s and teens for the next highest. So speaking to the the way that Seattle put the clamps on them, and then I guess we got to talk a little bit about Philip Grubauer, AJ. Where, where do you stand on on how much did he know about his his uh, former mates and what, how big of a factor is that at the end of the day? I think it's a huge factor. I mean, you uh, you consider he's going to know tendencies uh, in certain situations. 
you know, is this guy and, and it's simple stuff, right? But is this a, you know, five hole guy, a high glove side, blocker side, you know, what does this guy got want to do? And so I think there's some of that. There's extra I firmly believe in, you know, the the storylines that, you know, pundits ourselves included talk about, I think are actual things. And so going up against a former team, trying to, you know, uh, get back at them, if you will, quote unquote. But uh, I, I think that can't be undersold. And so I think a lot of that factors into it. Um, you know, Colorado went out and and they got their guy at the expense of Grubauer. And I think Grubauer wanted to come back and prove he was the better goaltender with a name that starts with G. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I think there's a lot to be said for the book that he must have accumulated on his former mates. And, and you know, we, we even see it in the shootouts that happen during the regular season. I mean, when you're looking at the shooters, you can almost anticipate the moves that they're going to pull because they don't have – a wide variety of tricks that I've seen over. I see the same players doing the same thing over and over in the shootouts. So uh, that those tendencies possibly translated into the games uh, where Grubauer is playing against these guys. And he, we both know he spent a ton of time with them in practices too. So he's seen the whole bag of tricks from the top end guys in this, in this group. And I think that was a huge factor in this outcome and, and can't be understated along with, like I said, the counterpunch mentality that, that helped Seattle uh, to almost, almost draw the Colorado club into a game that they didn't really want to play. So that, that was a big, big surprise in round one that went seven games and kudos to the expansion club, as I call them for bit, knocking off the defending chance. We will have definitely have a new Stanley cup winner because of that uh, outcome. How about take me into the Dallas Minnesota series. This is one that we both thought would be, going the distance and it pretty much did it went six games instead of the seven that we both forecast and i had dallas winning in seven they won in six so uh, it started with minnesota winning overtime but then dallas won four of the next five aj and uh, your impressions of that set well we said before we got started about you know about games three or four across most of these series i was feeling pretty good about some of my predictions uh you know colorado seattle's two two after three games, Minnesota was up 2-1 after having, you know, won that overtime in Dallas. So I, f- I felt pretty good uh, about my picks there, but Dallas just comes storming back. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people I've heard have maligned the decision to use Flurry in that second game. Uh, I would, I personally would stand by Dean Everson and that, and that call um, because, only because it was like a two overtime game and not a short second over period. You're talking about an extra 30 minutes on, on Gustafsson in that one. They've gone back and forth the whole time. Um, so I, I don't uh, blame them at all for deciding to go with flurry in that game too. Uh, I think unfortunately for them, all the noise about that decision and everything, I think it prevented them from going back to flurry in game six, which probably would have been the better choice after Gustafson gives up four to Dallas. The offense is clearly flagging uh, without scoring a goal. I mean, you look at it, Minnesota in those last three games uh, only scored three goals. Now, of course, credit to Jake Ottinger as well. Uh, certainly had a, a strong performance on his part. A nine, a two, nine was the save percentage. 2.01 is the goals against average. So uh, I, I think 
there were some some tough choices there that um, you know they had to they had to deal with. Uh, and then obviously Dallas, you know, Rupe Hintz, 12 points in six games. I, I believe that's the lead right now um, for all all players uh, in the in the postseason here. So really good outing by or a couple of games by him. Their power play, seven of his 12 points came on the man advantage. They had a really key uh, power play in the postseason here, converting at 37 and a half percent on the power play. Uh, and so they looked, you know, they looked really good. And uh, so I, I, you can't blame it all on the goaltending of Minnesota. Dallas had to come out and play really well. They got solid goaltending of their own. But uh, I agree with the decision to go with Flurry in game two. But I think it prevented them from making the right decision to turn to Flurry in that game six. Yeah, you know what? Uh, you, you touch on it. The power play effectiveness of one club versus the ineptness of the other one. I look at the Minnesota stats, partner, and I only see three power play goals in the set. I see Kirill Kaprasov, their primetime superstar, limited to one point, a goal on the power play in the total of the six games, and uh, a minus three on the entire series. Only 17 shots on goal. Those are figures that I was expecting from him, maybe over two or three games total, not a six-game set. And uh, when you consider that Matt Boldy was another guy that got blank, he was a guy that had a terrific second half. Instead, they were led offensively by Fred, Freddie Gaudreau with three goals. And if, if you were to tell me that he would be their leading scorer in the series, I'd have said they were in big trouble, and it turned out that they were. Ryan Hartman probably, uh, along with Matt Zuccarello, the only two top six guys that really delivered the goods, totaling a couple of goals and three helpers each for a five, respectable total of five points in the six games. But uh, I, I think the two-goalie system is something that they leaned on all season long. So I agree with you that turning to flurry after a double overtime game in game one shouldn't have been, it shouldn't be considered any kind of a differentiating factor in, in the outcome. But uh, certainly uh, we have to uh, give a nod to the goalie that played all the games for, for Dallas. And that's Jake Ottinger. He, he put up a save percentage of almost 93% of the series, weathering 183 shots along the way. So over 30 per game, the quick math there and limiting the opponents to two per game. So Give me any team that is required to score three a game to win, and I and I think I'll take that. So, uh, the uh, really the ability for Dallas to turn back the clock a little bit. Uh, they weren't the best defensive club most of the season, but they sure showed their wares in that that space. And uh, doubling down on what we talked about late in the stretch when we we mentioned that the big line in Dallas didn't include two guys that were considered signature players on this team prior to this season. And that's Tyler Sagan and, and uh, Jordy Ben, they did well enough uh, on second and third lines to, to hold uh, those units together and really stretch the roster. Consider that Ben had four points and Sagan had six in this series. And we didn't even touch on the fact that the, you know, you mentioned Rupe Hintz, but uh, of course, Jason Robertson, who was a big time player for them in the regular season, Nero Heiskanen on defense with six points. So they got the usual contributions on offense that we expected. And so that really turned the tables in this series for me to think that Dallas could combine both sides of their puck in a, in a good 200-foot game and really limit what Minnesota was able to do in this set, really decided the outcome. In uh, terms of the third series, AJ, that we're going to look at, it's the Vegas Knights and the Winnipeg Jets. You mentioned there was only one series that went five games how surprised were you that this was the case in this series? And what else did you think about it? 
Yeah, I was definitely surprised. Uh, obviously, I had picked uh, Winnipeg to win this one in seven. I, did, I certainly didn't think they would dispatch Vegas early. Um, a lot of that had to do with the the regular season performance of Connor Hellybuck, third in the league in wins with 37.920 save percentage, 249 goals against average, four shutouts, just a fantastic regular season. You look at the postseason numbers, and they are – Garbage. Uh, <laughs> 0.886 is the save percentage, 344 of the goals against average. Obviously, not getting a ton of defense in front of him. Um, but yeah, you look at the run in there, uh, and Vegas comes, uh, you know, they have that first game. Winnipeg wins it on the road, 5 1. Uh, seems like they're going to at least make a series of it. And Vegas scores 5 5 4 4 uh, are the goals in their next four games and just just knock them out. They just, you know, just overpowered them. Really. I think getting, uh, getting healthy obviously helped uh, with, with carrier coming back, uh, Mark Stone coming back. So they added uh, some, some guys, uh, you know, for the, for the playoffs here. Uh, Chandler Stevenson continues to do really well, had eight points in this series. Stone also had eight points. Eichel with three goals, William Carlson with four goals, uh, you know, they uh, they looked really good. I mean, it's hard to say anything about them other than that. Their PK uh, numbers, I think, were pretty solid. Uh, maybe. No, they weren't. Sorry. Their PK was not very good. I apologize. <laughs> um, but uh, I was looking at somebody else. So that, that says even more about how good Vegas was, that it didn't rely on the um, – the special teams, their, their power play percentage in the playoffs is less than 20. Their PK was under 60, um, but it didn't really matter. Good AJ, AJ, I got to ask you, I'm looking at the stats that uh, Vegas put up in the series. The leading scorer in the, in the series for them it was Chandler Stevenson with four goals and four assists, but right with him was Mark Stone, three, five, and eight in the five games played. We have to address the issue here. Are, are you thinking it's a bit of a bad look on the league for a guy to come in after missing – half a season essentially biding his time on the LTIR to give them an opportunity to, to fortify themselves elsewhere and then suddenly be activated at the in the playoffs. It's I think it's a bit of a bad look for the league. And I, I think that they gotta address this in the offseason. It's the second year in a row that we've seen this sort of thing happen in the NHL. So I'm not pinpointing Vegas per se. And I don't want our friend, Mr. Negrano, to come after me for that. But just to say that I'm, I, I turn a bit of a spocky an eye on this when I think how, how effective Mark Stone was after not playing for such a long length, a period of time. Kudos to him for that aspect, but uh, kind of a, uh, a ploy to get around the salary cap and, and take advantage of it to fortify their team is uh, something they certainly took full advantage of in this series. Your comment on that, please. It's, uh, oh, man. I uh, I don't know. I kind of agree. There's something kind of weird about it. You look at their their final cap hit is like 96 million. It's like way way over. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a little suspect, but it's within the rules. Uh, yeah. They did it when they brought over Eichel and then had you know to move the Dadnoff trade. So like whoever runs the cap situation in Vegas knows exactly what they're doing and knows every aspect of the rule. So I put zero blame on Vegas for that. Uh, no question. But, you know, maybe maybe it is something the league needs to address. Because, yeah, adding Mark Stone for the playoffs is a huge boost. 
Yeah, pretty nice situation. I mean, and then we got to talk about the goaltending situation too. Laurent Brassois was a backup for Winnipeg. Another case where a guy has a pretty good book on his opponents going a long way, I think, to contributing to this outcome. It's a theme that we touched on earlier in the Seattle victory over Colorado. So I think this was another thing that was at play here. He produced a 91.5 save percentage uh, and a 240-42 goals against. Those are sparkling numbers against a very good offense in Winnipeg that they kind of stifled along the way in this series. wasn't a high-scoring series uh, when you look at it. Uh, in the five games, 33 goals scored, so just a shade over well, six and a half per game. I guess that's that's higher than the league average during the early, close to the league average. But I was expecting more high scoring in this set. Uh, I guess both teams showed a bit of a, a respect to try and keep the clamps on one another. But uh, Vegas certainly came on top quicker than I expected. And I think because of that, there might be some significant changes in Winnipeg in the offseason. I mean, I didn't like the, the way the coach came out afterwards and went after his team. Bonus took a couple of broadside uh, broadsides at his roster. Uh, did that catch your eye, AJ? Um, no, not really. I felt like that's kind of been the MO here, right? Like uh, came in, uh, bonus uh, came in, took away the, the captaincy from Wheeler. And so yeah. it, it didn't stand out as anything different than what we've seen out of him throughout the regular season. Mm-hmm. All right. The final set on the Western side, we've got, Edmonton and Los Angeles matching up for the second year in a row. We both thought the Oilers would dispatch the Kings quickly. And mostly, most of that was because I didn't like the defensive structure that L.A. showed for much of the season. But they turned it up a little bit and posed a little bit more of a problem against Edmonton. And for a time, they looked like they might steal it again, going two, up 2-1. Two to one. But then the Oilers turned up the heat offensively and won this thing, I'll say, uh, going away at the end in six games. Your thoughts on this side, A.J.? This is one that I think, uh, again, highlights how quickly this could have gone differently um, on both sides. LA, both of LA's games that they won were in overtime. Uh, so, you know, a couple puck bounces here or there. Edmonton could have taken it in four. Um, but conversely, you know, they won that game four in overtime. If LA takes that one, it's a, it's a different series. So, yeah, just uh, a, lot of, a lot of overtime. And really, uh, I think, you know, overall, special teams definitely was a factor. The Kings had the league's worst penalty kill, uh, which is not a good thing to do when you're going up against Edmonton, who were converting on the power play at 56.3%. I mean, every other power play, they're getting a goal. Um, so that that's not a winning formula on their part. So yeah, special teams, I think were the uh, part of the factor here. This is a really good Edmonton team that can win uh, in shootouts. And if they get some decent goaltending, then they don't need to do the shootouts, but they'll, they'll just outbeat you uh, just by scoring goals if they have to. And I think you see that in the fact that, you know, they had five goals and then six and then five in the, in those kind of last couple of games. So uh, the higher score in the game, the more likely they were to win, it seems, in this series. Yeah, and really, L.A. didn't really have an answer for the top two guys that led the scoring in the regular season. Beyond Dreisaitl was a top point getter with seven goals and 11 points in this set. McDavid close behind at three and seven. And the the guy that really emerged uh, to be a factor in this series was Evan Bouchard, A.J. Uh, Edmonton has toyed with a couple other guys. Tyson Berry comes to mind. They let him go. 
But Bouchard came in and, and was a real factor on the power play with eight of his points coming on with the extra man uh, in favor of Edmonton's situation. He was logging over 23 minutes a game as well. So they really leaned hard on the young defenseman. And right behind him, Matthias Ekholm, a trade deadline acquisition, was a tower of power on the back end, adding four assists, but really uh, a shutdown defenseman on the back end that really they, they needed him and it took some some of the heat off Darnell Nurse. Uh, it, it's not lost on me that both of those defensemen emerged from the series as plus players too. So doing it at both ends of the ice uh, was really a big factor for Edmonton. But I'm, I still am concerned about the lack of depth scoring. I mean, Clint Costin, Costin was an exception here. Evander Kane gets the top six minutes. So does Zach Hyman. They got three and two goals respectively. But Clem Costin was, was effective in getting three goals, kind of an outlier to those guys uh, that really factored into the outcome. And Stuart Skinner played well enough. He was like playing the role of a grand Fuhrer in this set. You know, you know they're going to play wide open hockey. The goals against was 343. Not, not great, but good enough to get the win. And on the flip side, what is it that Los Angeles didn't do? I, I think they didn't find a way to, to corral the top two guys on and Edmonton, and so while Kopitar got the seven points and Deneau got five points, I think that Kopitar was a minus three in this set. That's a telling stat, too, and for, uh, Deneau a plus one. When we forecast this series, AJ, I thought that was the key matchup, that if Edmonton could escape the wrath of those two centers, I, I like their chances. And in, fa- in effect, at the end of the day, that was decisive for me. Uh, do you agree on that uh, assessment? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, Pretty much spot on. <laughs> okay, good. I like the gold star coming my way. Now, now we have to get into the Eastern Conference, AJ. Boston and Florida. I mean, like I said at the beginning, I, uh, I was hesitant about this series, and I really wanted to pick Florida, but how could you go against the defending uh, President's Trophy winners uh, who ran away with the league, essentially, in the regular season? So I had shut my mouth, and too bad was out of a real good hot take. That would have made me six and two in the first round, and not—that's uh, rarefied air in this series. But your thoughts on this set, and when did you think start to think maybe that Florida really had a chance to win this series? I'll be honest with you—I didn't really think Florida had a chance to win this series until they scored the overtime winner in Game Seven. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, that—that sounds like I'm knocking them. Um, they were obviously up three-one. They looked really, really good in, in most of those games. They got some great contributions um, from from their their you know kind of star power guys, including obviously uh, Tichuk with eleven points, Montour with eight, Carter Verhage with eight as well. Um, four goals out of Sam Reinhardt. So they they played really well. But this Boston team was just so good in the regular season. They've got so much experience winning games that I just even you know when things got tied up in game seven I still felt like this was Boston was going to come out uh, on top of this one so um, yeah like I said for for me personally uh, I did not think that this was Florida series until they scored that, that final seventh goal in game seven to to send it home. Yeah I'm inclined to agree with you age I mean there was the brave talk after game five when they were celebrating that overtime win and they said you know what we'll be back here in game seven i thought that was just whistling into the wind but uh, you got to give them credit they kept hanging around and and uh, as as uh, game seven wore on though i started to feel it like might have a chance because they skated 
they skated the Bruins into the ice at, for periods of that game. So I, I was a little earlier to the party in terms of thinking they might have a chance. I mean, helping uh, helping them get the 2 nothing lead started to give me those thoughts. But then when Boston took a 3-2 lead in that same last game, I thought, okay, this is the Bruins formula I saw most of the season. And no surprise. But big factor along the way was Linus Olmark not really playing at the top of his game, AJ. And it turned out that he was injured partway through this series, uh, accounting for some of the lopsided goal scoring that we saw against him in the few outings. And uh, that's not to say that putting Jeremy Swayman in was was a determining factor, but they did lose a little bit of their swagger when their number one goalie went down uh, from the standard that he had most of the regular season. And then we saw all four goalies in this series when you consider that uh, the Florida Panthers reverted to Bogrovsky in this set after going with Alex Lyon earlier on. And the goal, the goals against average, not flattering for either of the two guys on the winning side. And you think their save percentage was below 90%, but Boston's was below 89% on the whole series. And that was, to me, the most shocking aspect of the, of the first round, to think that Boston's defensive structure flagged so badly. And we have to look at the Bruins situation now and say, you know what, they did bet on the combination of Bergeron and uh, Krejci, the one-two at center, and they paid only like three million or three, three-five for the two of them this season. And uh, by all accounts, Krejci's done, and and maybe Bergeron as well. So uh, the Bruins could uh, see a big problem in the offseason in terms of trying to replace those two guys. Why don't you comment on that situation and, and let's take a quick look ahead for the Boston circumstance uh, as well as a look behind from your perspective. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue, you know, they kind of had to convince Krejci to come back in the first place, uh, kind of midseason uh, addition there, got him on the cheap 37. Uh, he's definitely not going to, I, you know, I don't expect him to go play, uh, somewhere else in the NHL. If he continues to play, he'll likely go back to the Czech Republic where he, where he started the year. Uh, obviously, Bergeron is not going to sign anywhere else either, of course. Um, so, yeah, he's got a tough decision to make. I mean, if this if this is the end, uh, what an outstanding career he had. A tough way to go out. And if anything, you almost wonder if how this ended in this like fantastic season that, you know, flames out in the playoffs. Is that enough to convince them to come back for one more year and see if they can do something different? I, I, I guess I wouldn't be shocked by it. Um, you know, if they had won the cup, I would have expected him to walk off into the sunset hundred percent. If they had won, I would have expected the day after we'd have heard Bergeron's retirement or, or shortly mm-hmm. thereafter. I think this will maybe be a slightly more protracted decision. I wonder about that because of the scene on the ice at the end of the game. We all saw the, the players going in a line to, to give Bergeron a hug before he left the ice as the last player. But it had to look to me the same feel that I got when Brett Farr, I mean, Aaron Rodgers left the field for Green Bay last year. But you didn't think he was going to come back. And that's the same feeling I got from Bergeron's uh, exit up from the ice at the end of that last game. So to me, the Bruins have a, a tough road to hoe in terms of filling in the top two spots in their center depth chart. And maybe what do they do with, a, with the situation with Tyler Bertuzzi? He's a pending free agent. Uh, they picked him up uh, at the trade deadline. And, and you know that he's going to be looking to, to go to a higher bidder, probably a highest bidder in the offseason. So the Bruins may be limited that way. And, and then on defense, Dmitry Orlov is another question mark because he signed on as another free agent. 
uh, at the trade deadline. Two great pickups, by the way. But now that the season is over, they're going to be looking for the best deal for themselves, and it might not land them back in Boston. So we might be looking at a very different Boston team with a very different outlook uh, next season. I'm, I'm very curious to see what that's going to look like. Now we get to, for me, the highlight of the first round, AJ, and uh, it's one of two series that I, I got right on the button with the Leaf, Leafs in six prediction. You picked Tampa in seven. I suspect you did that more as a shot against me than a real objective assessment in this series. I'll say that. But, but uh, maybe you did feel that Tampa was going to win this series, but it was very close, and uh, it, it started out kind of funny with both teams blowing each other out in two games in Toronto. And uh, I thought, what kind of fireworks are we in for? But then the Leafs won three games in overtime on the road. That's something that's never happened before in the NHL. And uh, I was pretty pumped by the end of it. I've got to say that. Yeah, I mean, it, it was probably a little of both, Paul. Uh, Tampa, you know, is, they've been there three years in a row. They've won two of them. Uh, so it was probably a little both, a little shot across the bow as well. But <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, three of Toronto's four wins in this series came in overtime. That's a different bounce of the puck, different, you know, change in, in the OT session. And uh, we're, we're talking about, you know, the yet another first round collapse in Toronto. And so I, I don't think it was that far off um, to that being a possibility. Uh, that that they could have won that. So, but all that to say, you got exactly what you wanted, I'm sure, out of your Toronto Stars in terms of their on ice production and, and doing what they're supposed to. Mitch Marner with 11 uh, postseason points at six sits seventh or second rather right now. Uh, Austin Matthews five goals uh, in, in six games. I mean, there's not really anybody among that kind of star-studded group that you can blame for not stepping up. Morgan Riley has good numbers. Willie Nylander, Tavares, Ryan O'Reilly, the, you know, uh, the big addition there at the deadline. So all looking pretty roses heading into the next round. The the studs are working. Uh, the goaltending's been decent enough. So, uh, Paul, I'm guessing you're feeling pretty confident still. I am for sure. But uh, in terms of assessing this series – it could easily have gone the other way. You mentioned the overtime. We mentioned the overtime games. The Leafs won all three of them. If they lose one, it goes to seven. And you've got to imagine the stick, they would have been pressing the sticks pretty tight. And and that's where I want to think. Start uh, my assessment here, talking about the fact that they got their monkey off their back. But when we previewed this series, AJ, I said for me, it's going to come down to the center depth. And Leafs did the smart thing and put Ryan O'Reilly at center on a third scoring line. And I said, if the Leafs can hold their own offensively with the center at the center position, they will. That will go a long way to determining the outcome. The final tally: twenty-three points for the Leafs' top centers, twelve for the for the Tampa team. That to me is where this series was won and lost. And I also think that uh, Victor Hedman was a bit of a shadow of the figure that I expected in this series. He did pick up three assists, was a plus four, but really didn't dominate the series. Only eight shots on goal in this entire set. And we got to talk about Vasilevsky because uh, heretofore, uh, in the seven years that we've done this show together, AJ, every matchup that we've had with Tampa, we've always said Vasilevsky gives this team the edge in goal. Going in, they had that edge again as well. But I think it's safe to say we didn't see the best of Vasilevsky when you consider 356 was the goals against average, 875 the save percentage. Samsonov, that wasn't much better than that, but he was quite a bit better than that, I'll say, enough to make the difference. 
and uh, really made some big saves when the Leafs needed the most and was lights out, of course, in the overtimes where at times the Leafs were outplayed in those sessions. But, hey, in years past, how many times was I crying about the fact Leafs would outshoot Montreal 11-2 to and they'd lose the overtimes? So I think uh, I think things evened out for me and the Leafs in this series. And, uh, you know, the big guys did perform. And looking forward, they've gotten rid of a big monkey off their back. So I'm really curious to see how they start the next series against Florida. We'll talk about that shortly. Instead, now let's move on to the next series and look at Carolina versus the Islanders. We were on opposite sides of this one as well, AJ. You had it right, though, in terms of picking Carolina in six. So kudos to you on that call. I thought the Islanders would put up a better fight against a wounded Carolina club. They go into the second round missing three of their top shooters offensively on this stuff. And then you factor in Max Pacioretty as well. But uh, before we look forward, look backward for me and, and uh, tell me that this one probably went according to what you might have expected. Yeah, before we jump into that, just saw this. Uh, Jared McCann didn't make the trip, so he will miss at least the first two games of the series for Seattle. And it sounds like questionable to play in the series at all. So a pretty significant injury uh, to Jared McCann dealing uh, there. So Seattle going to have to overcome that. Um, but yeah, circling back to, to this series, um, you know, I said when we were evaluating this that the Islanders are a tough team to play against. I think that was reflected in the fact that Carolina won two games in overtime. They won the first game two to one. So obviously a, a tight game there as well. So Three of their four wins coming uh, by just one goal with, you know, two of them in, in OT. So uh, Islanders, a tight team to play against, um, tough team to play against there in terms of, you know, what they what Carolina was able to do. Uh, the numbers from Antti Ranta aren't wowzer numbers. Um, you know, they're 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 OK uh, that the. the Save percentage is 906. It's it's not obviously not great, um, but he did enough there, and you know they uh, were able to to get you know Freddie Anderson back to healthy. It sounds like he was dealing with something. He steps in for that that final game, gives up just one goal on 34 shots. So I would be surprised if we see anybody other than Freddie Anderson heading into the next round. Um, but yeah, Carolina, I think, looked really good across the board, uh, despite, you know, we talked about all the injuries, uh, you know, Pacioretty, Teravainen, Svechnikov, Kasha, Jack Drury missed time uh, during this series. Uh, the only place they haven't been hugely impacted so far, hopefully I'm not jinxing them here, is on the blue line. But um, they just keep plugging away with guys like Stefan Nosen coming in, racking up a bunch of points in the in the postseason here uh, doing some, some good work on their, their power play as well. So yeah, I, I think uh, they're just Carolina is just a really deep quality team and they've been able to overcome those injuries. That's right. I, I don't think there's many teams that could have, could have gone and won the series like they did losing, missing the pieces that they had. But for me, the Islanders played the Islanders type of game that they needed to. They, they actually, uh, were pretty, it was pretty much a saw-off in terms of goal scoring in this series. 16 for the Carolina and 15 for, for the Islanders. So if you looked at that going in as a forecast saying it's going to be that close, I would have really liked the Islanders' chances. But the fact of the matter is that uh, they needed to get more out of their top two centers. 
a bit of a theme that I'm touching on here in the middle of the ice, I guess. But Brock Nelson did have two goals and three assists. But uh, Matthew Barzell, uh, pretty much a non-factor, only 14 shots and only two goals, a minus one uh, as well. They needed more from those two guys. And throw in Bo Horvat as well. That's three pretty good centers that they had going there. But even Bo Horvat, one goal and one assist. So that kind of tells the tale for me in terms of why the Islanders couldn't uh, get over the hump. You throw in the fact that their captain, Anders Lee, only had one goal. So their big-time players weren't big-time enough in this series and they couldn't overcome Carolina. So that really told the tale for me. AJ, uh, that leaves us one series to talk about, and that's one that we both felt would go the distance. I got it right by picking the Devils at home, and you had the Rangers in six games. And uh, there was no doubt in my mind it was going to go six or seven. And really, for me, of all the series, this was the biggest coin flip of all. Very evenly matched clubs, very much better rivals. And uh, I was somewhat surprised that uh, Devils won going away in two of the last three games and the Rangers with a 5-2 win. The last three games weren't as close as the first uh, couple in the middle, but uh, five games with actually pretty wide margins. That was probably the most surprising aspect for me overall. But uh, what were your impressions of this set before I get mine? Well, there was something you said talking about the last series, you know, that the Stars showed up and, and did their job. Uh, that was not the case, I, I think, in this one. You look at, you know, Vinny Trocek had one point in seven games. Um, Patrick Kane ended with no goals in his last five, no points in his last three. Um, so, you know, a couple of guys that they expected to to get big, big games from here just, just didn't show up. Chris Kreider did everything he could to carry this team, Adam Fox, the same, um, but yeah, they they had some guys that I would have expected more of. Keandre Miller is another one, just one assist in seven games there as well. Uh, Lafreniere, no points in, in the playoffs. Trubo with no points in the playoffs. Um, so yeah, so for the Rangers, I think they the guys they rely on absolutely did not show up in, in this series. I would put the, the Devils on uh, kind of, Similar to Seattle, they weren't overly reliant on any one person. Eric Eric Halla led the way with four goals. Hughes had three. Um, you know, they got Palat and, and Mercer with a couple goals. So they didn't have to lean too heavily on one person. And I think I thought depth would be what helped the Rangers win that series. Uh, and it seemed to be the opposite. It was New Jersey's depth, I think, that helped them take this one. Yeah, and we can't certainly talk about the uh, not talk about the Rangers and not mention Igor Shosturkin. He did what Igor Shosturkin was expected to do: a ninety-three percent save percentage and a goals against under two. You would have taken that going in and liked your chances very much. But in addition to all the names you mentioned on the Rangers, they've got to be concerned that two of their young guns that they've given lots of chances to really didn't factor into the scoring here. And looking forward, they've got to be concerned about the fact that. They got only one goal from uh, from Capocacco. They got nothing from Alexi Lafreniere. These were both two high draft picks that, that should be coming into their own by now. And this should have been something of a, of a coronation for them, coming out party, if you will. And uh, they got zip for, zippity-doo-dah from these guys. Jacob Trouba uh, uh, was in the 
the headlines of the summary of Game 7 for a big hit. But other than that, nothing from him either as, as one of the team leaders on this club. So they can point to those three guys and say, boy, we really got very little. And a guy that I, I highlighted a lot during the second half of the season, Artemi Panarin, no goals and two assists in seven games. Shocker for me. So uh, there's a number of reasons why the Rangers didn't get the Duke in a close series. But if those guys would have performed according to Hoyle, I think they'd have won this series uh, much earlier than a seventh game. So they got some questions in the offseason. The Devils, though, they have to feel great about themselves. They remind me of the Leafs a couple of years ago where they had all these young guns that were coming into their own at the same time. And you're starting to see what that's going to look like when you consider Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes, the one-two punch at center, combining for 10 points in uh, this close-scoring series in the seven games. So they kind of did what they needed to do. Dougie Hamilton was restricted to three points in the series. I would have said he would have got more. So uh, there's there's names on both sides, though, that you could say they didn't deliver what we thought. Thomas Tatar, only one goal for these guys. Timo Meyer blanked in seven games and maybe questionable going forward after that hit. We'll get into what uh, the Devils look like going forward. But he was rocked after doing nothing in this series. And they have to be concerned about the fact that they paid to get him at the trade deadline and really didn't show up. Lucky for him, he gets a second chance in the next round. And then, you know, of course, Akira Schmidt comes out of nowhere. Vita Vanisek was the guy that was tending goal in the second half a lot of the time and struggled early on in the series to up to the tune of 4.43 goals against average. All Akira Schmidt did when he came in was appear in five games and limit the Rangers to uh, 1.38 goals against, and uh, they were victims of his 95% save percentage. So if that were, there was a shining star for the Devils, Schmidt was the guy. And uh, on DraftKings show yesterday, when we were asked to highlight who was going to be the cornerstone of our DFS lineups, I picked Schmidt and uh, come out smelling like a rose with his shutout and a victory to lead all point getters in the DFS play. So a bit of a pat in the back for me at, at the end of it, AJ. <laughs> So with that said, we have gone through the first round and uh, let's take a pause right now to give our sponsors some airtime. Then we'll return to, pre- uh, to preview the four conference semifinal series. You're listening to RotoWire's podcast with Statsman and AJ. We'll be back right after these. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. 
For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Messages. All right, we're back. Let's uh, have another reminder for ways that our listeners can reach out to us during the playoffs. Uh, I mean, you may have some questions about structuring your team in the offseason for next year, but maybe that you're in a playoff pool that allows you to make roster moves as well. We're open to all kinds of questions in that regard. So over to AJ for that weekly reminder. Yeah, absolutely. If you find want to find out what we're up to uh, in the postseason here, where you can see us uh, doing various stuff, Best way to do that is over on Twitter. You can follow me at AJScholes24. You can follow Paul at Statsman22. As Paul mentioned, happy to answer any questions uh, you have about next season, this season, or, uh, you know, just life in general. <laughs> Very good. Well, the shingle is out, and uh, I'm, I love discussing any range of topics, some that might, uh, even people would consider off limits. So, uh, please hit me up with anything you like, and AJ is open in that regard as well. But we love to talk hockey most of all, so make that your focus, please. Uh, we we begin our look at the two Western Conference series, and uh, the first one that we'll touch on is Dallas and Seattle, uh, an unlikely matchup when you consider Seattle, of course, dumping the champs uh, out to the sidelines. In the regular season series, it was close. In two with two games going to overtime, each team won the one one, and then the third game, Dallas won by a 5-2 margin. If I look at the stats here on the playoffs so far, it was the special teams that really helped Dallas. They uh, power play clicking, as AJ mentioned, to the tune of 37.5%. Their penalty killing was pretty good, too, at 86%. That's a pl- about 123 on the Scotty Bowman scale of summing the two to show how effective they were. And they had a, a goals for margin versus goals against a 21-14 solid uh, victory over Minnesota underlined by all those numbers. Seattle, on the other hand, a very weak power play uh, of 9.5%. That's the lowest number of any team in the first round. And uh, safe uh, penalty killing was really something that really helped them against Colorado, 94.4%. They actually lost the goals, four goals against uh, matchup against Colorado, but happy to take the series. They were 18 goals for, 19 goals against. AJ, we're going to look at these teams the way we preview every playoff series. In terms of the depth charts, how are these teams lining up? Why don't you pick a team and uh, take us through the forward ranks? Well, if you're watching over on YouTube, you will see I am sporting a Seattle Kraken jersey. Uh, I have not switched full-time allegiances, still Penguins fan, but I just thought these things were cool as hell when they came out, uh, so I got one. Um, so, yeah, I'll take, I'll take us through Seattle here. Uh, I mentioned just a minute ago Jared McCann. It's going to be out at least the first two games, possibly longer. 
So they have uh, Ty Carty uh, up as uh, <laughs> up as their first uh, line left winger right now. Um, they uh, you know brought him in. He had a goal in his first playoff game. Has been definitely quiet in the last two. Just one shot on goal in uh, the last two games there. But this is uh, you know an undrafted. Uh, undrafted player that they signed out of the OHL um, spent most of the season with Coachella Valley and racked up a ton of points, 28 goals, 29 assists uh, in in 72 uh, games for, for the AHL affiliate here. So they add him to the roster. And for now it looks like he's going to get some lead on that top top line with Maddie Berniers and Jordan Eberle. Uh, Then we've got Schwartz, Wenberg and Geeky is the second line. Tolvanen, Gord, and Bjorkstrand, followed by uh, what would be a pretty rough and tumble line of Brandon Tanev, Ryan Donato, and Daniel Sprong. Uh, I think what you see highlighted here is they've really, uh, they're a young team. And, you know, they, you know, Beneers, Carty, Tolvanen, uh, even, you know, even Geeky. Morgan Geeky is, uh, you know, 24. So they're a young team. They've got some veterans splattered across the lineup. As I mentioned before, they're they're pretty deep there. So I like their forward complement. Uh, defensively, they look solid too. Vince Dunn kind of leading the way during the season as their you know offensive producer from the blue line has been very quiet in the postseason, but overall has looked uh, during the regular season pretty good. Jamie Alexiak just dishing out hits is that with that towering frame of his. They've got Justin Schultz as kind of a quiet, sneaky option there as well. Um, so I, I I like the forwards. I like the defensemen here. We talked about Philip Grubauer. He should continue to see the bulk of the starts. But if for some reason they needed to, they do have both Marty Jones and Chris Dreger available if they had to go somewhere else. So uh, it's a deep team. It's a young team in in certain spots, but overall. I think just a solidly constructed roster um, that was able to get past Colorado. I definitely agree with you, but I am concerned about that loss for Jared McCann. I think it's bigger than most people are going to be aware of. And I think that will be a factor in this series for sure. On the flip side, Dallas may have a bit of a concern with Joe Pavelski's situation. I don't know what you know about a guy that you're a big fan of. I know AJ generally, but he's listed as day-to-day, the only injury note of any consequence on the Dallas roster. And in fact, they, the Rotowire is placing him as a third line right wing at the moment based on likely on that status, but I'll give you a chance to rebut that in a sec. That causes them to juggle up their forward lines a little bit. Uh, and uh, Pavelski, normally a first-line winger, his spot, if he's unable or uh, not at the top of his game to go, will be taken likely by Tyler Sagan is what we're seeing. I mentioned off the top that when we were looking at the previous series that uh, he was more of a second- or third-line player for much of the season, and uh, getting back to the first line is nothing uh, new for, for the veteran, and he's been a very solid playoff performer, so I don't think they're going to miss too much of a beat there. And then the second line, Jamie Benn, has been really the anchor, the guy that they've keyed around the second line, built around it. If Genny Dodonov has found a better life here, life better here than in Montreal, and Wyatt Johnson's been something of a revelation as center on that second line, uh, really excelling in the second half of the season. And at the trade deadline, they acquired Max Domi. All the guy's done, I keep saying it, he's been a very solid citizen, and he's done himself a real good service here, no matter how things turn out, that he's played well enough to earn uh, a good uh, 
bit of uh, attention in the offseason when, uh, when the free agency rolls around, but he's got more work to do for, and, and wants to help this team on a, play, a long playoff run. I say just keep doing what you're doing and keep your nose to that grindstone across the ice. You can look at Pavelski as a line mate uh, if uh, what we speculate holds. And then Mason Marchman, a big physical presence on the third line who is a nasty bit of business with some scoring ability as well. Then fourth line, Radic Fax, a veteran who's been around here for a while. Luke Glendening, been a fourth liner in the NHL for a long while. And Ty Delandria, round out the offense to give them a credible and physical presence along that fourth line as well. And uh, on the defense, Miro Heiskanen is the signature player here. No question about it, AJ. Ryan Sutter, a veteran uh, of uh, wars in the NHL, had a bit of a, a seesaw kind of a season, uh, but you got to count on him when the chips are down in the postseason as a guy that won't hurt you. And uh, so that's why they're paired at the top of that depth chart. Yanni Hockenbach and Essa Lindell, a pretty nondescript offensive pair on the blue line, but I like the defensive presence of both these guys. Could be considered a shutdown pairing. And then they've got uh, veteran Colin Miller, who's got that blazer of a slap shot. You might see him featured occasionally in scoring offensive zone starts. And Thomas Harley rounding out the six-pack there. In the Nets, they're going to live and die with Jake Ottinger, who's been a spectacular goalie in the NHL. One of the top half dozen, I would say, across the NHL, AJ. So that's my assessment on this team. Uh, Scott Wedgwood in reserve in the Nets, uh, pretty good backup. But really, they, they would be lost, I think, if they had to sub in for Ottinger. Uh, I, I'm going to lead off first in terms of my series outcome, AJ. And uh, I'm going to say... I'm taking Dallas in six. I think Cinderella is, is the Cinderella time for Seattle is going to end in this set. And I think Dallas is, is, uh, is due for a, a, a win in six games in this series. How do you break it down? Uh, any other comments you want to make on this set? Yeah, I'll just mention Joe Pavelski uh, latest. We have game time decision is the label um, tonight. Uh, does look like he did some work uh, with the the number one power play unit. So that seems to always be an indication that he'll probably play wondering if they have him in a third line role tonight to kind of limit the minutes um, compared to if he was on, you know, the first line, but we'll see what happens. Like I said, game time decision. As far as my prediction here, um, I'm going to stick with Seattle. I think it goes the distance. I think it goes seven games. They obviously showed that they're built in a way that can not, you know, knock off Colorado. I think they'll do the same to Dallas here. Uh, one of the X factors for them is, you know, their their net PK is ninety four point four percent. So they're doing um, some good work there in in limiting uh, the opponent's power plays. Uh, obviously, their power play itself has struggled. Not having McCann isn't going to make that any easier. Um, but if they can really shut down the other side on the special teams, I think that'll get them past Dallas. Okay, the next series we're going to look at uh, is the other one on the western side, Vegas and Edmonton. This might be the most compelling series for me in the second round, obviously uh, my personal interests aside. But you're looking at two excellent offenses and uh, with a lot of name recognition in this series on both sides. The regular season, Edmonton kind of had the edge. Two of the games went to overtime, each team winning one. And then Edmonton winning two other games by 4-3 and 7-4 scores. In terms of the special teams in the first round, Vegas' power play was pretty good at 
18.8%. Their PK was dreadful at 58.3%. You already mentioned that Edmonton's power play was outstanding in the first round. They hit at a 50% rate, so that'll be something to watch. But Edmonton's uh, penalty killing wasn't very good either at 66.7%. So I think both teams' power plays will be compelling viewing and may go a long way to determining the outcome of this series. So uh, that'll be something to watch for sure. In terms of breaking down these teams, AJ, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to touch on the Edmonton Oilers, and you can deal with the Vegas roster top to bottom. Of course, they're going to live and die with the fortunes of their two-headed monster and dry side McDavid. It looks like they're going to line them up on the same line to start this series. I don't really like that call. I think they should try and spread their roster uh, depth, but uh, I think this could change in game, even game one. But they're going to try looking at their all eggs in one basket approach, it looks like, with Evander Kane rounding out that top line. So uh, as formidable a, a trio as there is on one unit in the postseason here. And, and they're hoping, obviously, that these guys can play 25 minutes, 20, 25 minutes each uh, and uh, dominate while they're on the ice to give Edmonton what you would expect that they've provided in the past, and that's a lot of offense. they got to find more, and it begins with that second line. Brian Nugent Hopkins was a guy that factored in during a lot of the year. He, he was over 100 points in the regular season, but wasn't really as big a factor in that first round. I think they got to get more out of him in the second one, and he'll be partnered with Zach Hyman, who was kind of the fifth player in, in terms of the big five up front. He's had an uh, outstanding year, career best numbers. Nick Bugstead gets the promotion to the second line at center, and that's where I have a problem, AJ. Okay, we, you know this guy has great size. He should be a good offensive piece, but he's never really put it together. Maybe partnered with these two excellent veteran wingers, they might get more out of him than we've seen in the past, so that'll be something that I'm watching. Then beyond that, it's a bottom six that really hasn't contributed much of Aside from the aforementioned Clint Costin and fourth line and Kyler Yamamoto have the series winning goal for them. But other than that, Ryan Warren Fogel, Derek Ryan, Ryan McLeod, Philip Roberg, they're fillers. And I don't expect much from any of those pieces. Uh, so uh, the, the depth is really at the high end of the roster, clearly. And we'll see if they can do enough to push aside the Vegas club. On defense, I mentioned Matthias Ekholm and Darnell Nurse give them a real good presence on each of the top two pairings. These guys can play at both ends of the ice. They've got great size, physical, good offensive skills, and their par- partners are pretty good too. Cody, Cody Cece has found life after Toronto. I mean, I used to kid with you. I couldn't believe that Pittsburgh was taking a chance on this guy. I thought he was a dreadful defenseman, but he's really come into his own in the last couple of years, and that's continued in Edmonton. And then you got Evan Bouchard, who had a coming-out party like crazy in that last round, and they need him to continue that in that regard. Brett Kulak and Vincent Dearnay, two big presences uh, on the third pairing, as well to add more physicality. Behind them, Stuart Skinner in the Nets, who uh, had his own coming-out party of sorts this season. I'd like to see them play a little more defensive-minded around him, but who's kidding who? That's not in Edmonton's DNA. And Jack Campbell will be sitting on the bench counting his money from the regular season. They don't get paid in the postseason, but he's sitting on a nice uh, fat wallet. But in the second string role, that's something that uh, is a bit of a concern longer term. But uh, he did come up big in one game as in a cameo appearance that kind of turned that last series. He may be called upon to do the same thing in this set, but it's going to be up to Skinner to carry the flag for Edmonton in the Nets. Your thoughts on uh, what I've said, anything that I've said, or take me into Vegas. Yeah, I'll just dive us in into Vegas here. 
Um, you know, you mentioned Edmonton, very, uh, the depth is, is a little bit top heavy there. I mean, obviously hard not to be with McDavid and Dreisaitl on the team, but uh, I, I would say that it's definitely a little deeper on the, the Golden Knights. Not that they don't have top end, end talents. Obviously their first line, Barbashev with Jack Eichel and Jonathan Marchessault. We've got Riley Smith, William Carlson, Michael Amado uh, on, the, on the second line. Although, I don't know, we have it on Rotowire technically as the second line. I would call that more the third line. I think of Mark Stone, Chandler Stephenson, and Brett Howden more as the set line, second line for me. William Carrier and Nicholas Waugh, Keegan Colasar as the fourth line. And, oh, I haven't even mentioned Phil Kessel, who they scratched. Uh, Teddy Bluger is another player who's – played uh, obviously with the Penguins and, and capable. So they have plenty of guys here um, that are capable of, uh, you know, playing not only in the lineup now, but you toss Phil Kessel back in there. Um, had to be a weird experience for him to watch a game from the sidelines. Uh, not not used to that <laughs> uh, at any point in his career. So, um yeah, so they've got a ton of forward depth. Uh, concern about the Braden McNabb injury. Uh, didn't practice again after missing game five. So, you know, we've got him day to day right now. We'll see if he plays, but that still leaves them with Alec Martinez, Alec Petrangelo, Shea Theodore, and Ben Hutton as your top four. Nicholas Haig and Zach Whitecloud round out the group, and they've got a couple other guys who could factor as well. Obviously, a better group with Braden McNabb in there. Um, but they certainly, again, they have the depth to kind of overcome that. Alex Petrangelo led the way in terms of defensive scoring with five points in those five games. Uh, and then, you know, Shea Theodore picking up three as well. So they've got, uh, you know, guys on the blue line that can dish the puck, that can dish out assists, maybe not quite the goal scorers that you would uh, maybe want or that other teams have from the blue line. Between the pipes, it continues to be Laurent Brossois' net, and it will be, I think, until it's not. Uh, obviously, Aiden Hill, Jonathan Quick waiting in, in the wings here. Logan Thompson still working his way back from injury. Could potentially be a factor uh, if he's able to get healthy here. But at this point, I, you'd be insane to take Brossois out of the net. You look at the numbers, 4-1, and one, obviously, in, in the five-game series. nine one five. the save percentage, two four two. The goals against average, so just solid, decent numbers that'll keep you in games. Uh, it's going to be harder to do that against, obviously, Edmonton's top guys. Um, so it, I think that maybe for me, the net mining, probably the biggest question mark heading into this final series, how well can Brossois handle uh, the, the level of offensive talent that he's going to see in, in this series? So. That's where I see the series going. I'm, I'm waffling back and forth on this one, but I think I'll take us into it first, Paul. I'm going to go with Vegas in six. Uh, I, I was back and forth about taking maybe Edmonton in seven. Uh, the goaltending is a concern for me, um, but as I look through the depth on this Vegas squad, they're just so deep throughout the roster. They've got a ton of talent. They can win shootout games. They can win more defensively minded games if, if they need to. And so I'm going to go Vegas in six for this one. 
Yeah, I think we're on the same side of the fence on this one. I just think Vegas has enough of a defensive conscience and some veterans on the blue line who are going to get in the way of the top Edmonton guys. They might load up a pairing to really negate them if they if they choose to go with Dreisaitl and McDavid on one line. I can really see that being a factor. So I'm looking for that to be a deciding factor and determining factor in this series. I am concerned about the defensive structure of Edmonton as a whole, and I think that's going to be the the thing that really tips the scales in favor of Vegas. I do see it going the distance. So it'll be decided in the fortress, and I think Vegas has a big party in Game 7. The final uh, final two series that we're looking at are on the eastern side. We're going to save my most passionate uh, comments for the last one. We're going to look at Carolina versus New Jersey. The season series was split between the two clubs, 4-1 to one win by Carolina, 5-4 to four shootout win by Carolina, and then two wins by New Jersey by the tune of 5-3 to three and 3-0. Three so uh, some goal scoring in a couple of games, but then some lower scoring in others. I'm not really sure what that means, uh, but I do tend to lean on the fact that there won't be a ton of offense in this series, despite the fact that both teams have a lot of weapons. There's a healthy regard on both sides. Carolina's uh, power play kind of let them down in the first round and made things a little harder than it should have been. Only 16% effective. The PK was uh, full marks, though. When you factor in a shorthanded goal, they were actually 100% on the adjusted power penalty killing situation. So that part of their special teams really in order. Ditto for the Devils, though. 89.3 on the penalty kill and 16.7 on the power play. So that's going to be something that uh, could tip the scales if one of the teams can get their PK power play in order that could tilt things but uh, based on things going in pretty even uh, evenly matched I would say AJ I'm going to give you the chance to pick what which team you want to profile and I'll take the other one well maybe it's tipping my hand on how we're going to uh, evaluate this series but I'm going to run us through Carolina um, they made a few tweaks today uh, at practice I think part of that is Jack Drury is looking like he might get back in for game one here uh, they did previously have Mackenzie McEachern uh, on the top line with Sebastian Ajo and Seth Jarvis, but they've moved Stefan Nosen into that role. And they've got Martin Hook with Coach Kanemi and Fast, Martin Neckash, Jordan Stahl, and the aforementioned Jack Drury on the third line. Then Stastny, Stepan, and Pujarvi make up the fourth. Uh, again, you know, when you consider this team theoretically was supposed to have Svechnikov, Taravainen, Pacioretty, all pretty much locked for for top, you know, top six. Maybe they move them, one of those guys to the third line just for some scoring depth, but pretty much, you know, three top six guys that are out. And then Andre Kasha, for sure, if healthy, uh, would be a third liner for them. So this would be a ridiculously stacked team if you add those guys in, but it hasn't really slowed them down. Sebastian Ajo, as expected, led the way. The seven points, the defense chipping in uh, where they can. Brent Burns had five helpers over that series. Brent, uh, Brett Pesci had two. Jacob Slavin with two points as well. Uh, so I think it's going to – it is. I think you're absolutely right, Paul. It's going to come down to which team can get their special teams going quick, uh, going faster. As I mentioned, you know, Slavin and Burns is the top pairing. Brady Shkay and Brett Pesci as the second. Shane Gossespierre, Jalen Chatfield – as the third, Gostas Bear, really good regular season, seemed to have bounced back, but went pointless in the in the playoff series with the Islanders. So he's one, a guy that definitely they could use to kind of get going again. And I mentioned this before, I think we're going to see Freddie Anderson in the pipes for game one uh, based on that that performance in, in the clincher. He just looked too good. 
not to go back to him in the, the first game of this series. So a really deep team uh, that's been able to overcome some injuries. Uh, you know, they're, they're obviously thin still in terms of star power. Like if, if something were to happen to Ajo, this team's probably pretty much sunk. Um, but, you know, so far they made it through and uh, I, I, they look pretty good. And, you know, it's worth pointing out, the winner of this series will get home ice against whoever emerges from the other matchup that we're about to talk about. So that's what's at stake as well. I, I do see this as a pretty evenly matched set, but I, uh, I'm i happy to be on the New Jersey side of it if we tip our hands a little bit because of the depth at, at forward and uh, the fact that they have two goalies that they can really count on in this series that I feel more confident in than either of the two in Carolina. That's another tip uh, and a shot across the bow as well. Uh, Nico Heischer, Jackson. Just Freddie Anderson hate coming out of Toronto. It just never well, ends. You know what? He's, <laughs> he's struggled this season. Most, most of my comment about him is that he struggled to stay healthy this season. Maybe he's healthy right now, but the playoff pedigree, the, the history that he has is not a glittering one either. So I remember that very well. Uh, on the Devils' side, look at their two-headed monster up front. Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes are, are two of the most skilled pivots in the league. Dawson Mercer has really emerged as a third credible skilled offensive forward. So I really like the depth at center here. And uh, across the first line, Jesper Bratt had a breakout campaign. Thomas Tatar has had uh, been a streaky scorer, but a veteran guy that rounds out the top unit. Andre Palat is a key addition here. This guy came from Tampa. He knows all about going deep into the playoffs, and he's played his best hockey in the postseason throughout his career, and the first round was no exception. Eric Halla. Got some time with the Boston Bruins, and he learned how to uh, round out his game there and brought that ability to New Jersey, and I really like his game as well. Those guys will be the line mates for Jack Hughes on a very nice second line, but you consider the third line pretty good scoring depth there when you have the likes of Igor Sharangovich, who was their signature offensive piece in uh, for long stretches over the last couple of years, and Timo Meyer, the prized acquisition at the trade deadline, who, as I said, hasn't really acquitted himself very well in the postseason. Maybe the second uh, round is his come out, coming out party. There's no injury note on him, AJ. Before I go on, is there anything that you know about his situation? Is he at full strength? or, or I know he came back to this, the handshake line, So, but that, uh, that wasn't definitive enough for me. We haven't seen any injury notes after that big hit that he took, but can you confirm that he looks healthy enough to go? Yeah, we haven't we haven't seen anything today that would indicate that he won't be available. Okay, good. Thanks for that. Then uh, fourth line, uh, difficult to play against types like Miles Wood and Michael McLeod. That could give uh, the Carolina club some pause. So, and uh, Nathan Bastian rounds out that uh, that group. They got Curtis Lazar and Jesper Boquist as two other uh, people that will be interchangeable in the bottom six. So, I think a rather robust and deep. Uh, forward group there that's fully healthy and ditto on the back end when you consider the puck movers that they have at the disposal. Uh, Dougie Hamilton, one of the best defensemen in hockey, uh, they'll look for him to carry the flag uh, in a lot of offensive zone starts and certainly on the power play and uh, look for him to be a guy that could really sway this series in their favor if he can produce. John Marino, probably the the linchpin offensively on that second line. Nice partnership for him with Ryan Graves, two guys that have some offensive skills. In them. I should mention Jonas Siegenthaler will be the defensive conscience beside Dougie Hamilton. The third pairing features Damon Severson, who will be featured on the second power play for New Jersey. And they round it out with Kevin Ball, Brendan Smith, and Luke Hughes as depth pieces on that New Jersey blue line. So while there's not a lot of physicality there, 
I don't think there's a lot of physicality on the Carolina side to worry about either. So it's uh, fortunate for New Jersey that they have this matchup, I think, when you consider the defensive uh, makeup of this group and uh, might be a good thing for them. Then in the Nets, Akirish Mead really emerging uh, in the latter part of the regular season, but most most uh, importantly in the first round of the playoffs. Another one of these big goalies, AJ. Uh, Vitek Vanasek is the guy that carried the, the, a lot of the load in the regular season. I wouldn't be surprised to see both goalies play for them in this set. I think we might see all four goalies for both teams in this series. Uh, it might be a win and you're in kind of situation uh, for on both sides. So uh, with that said, I'm going to go ahead and lead off with our picks in this series, AJ. And I really think that New Jersey has uh, the advantage here. They don't have home ice advantage, in fact. But I do think when you t- take a look at the roster depth, I feel really good about picking uh the Devils over uh, Carolina Club. I can't keep coming back to the fact that they're missing some key pieces up front, and they'll they'll be exposed for that lack of depth in this series. Well, I picked Carolina last round. No reason for me to change my mind here. I've got the Hurricanes in six. I like that they've got a healthy Freddie Anderson. Uh, their blue line is really solid, so I think they will uh, they will take this one in six games. All right, AJ, I took a peek at your pick in the last series. I'll save my comments for the end of the show. But Toronto at Florida, the season series in favor of the Maple Leafs, when you look at it, 3-0-1, but three games decided in overtime, Leafs winning 5-4 five and 2-1, five to four and two to one. the Florida team winning 3-2 to two and in overtime, and then there was one rather lopsided game where Toronto won 6-2. to two. So on the season, the Leafs taking the, the season set. They finished ahead of Panthers in the regular season, but uh, we found out in the first round that really means nothing in the postseason. So it comes down to what these teams look like going forward and based on what they did in the first round. So to that end, the Leafs, 26, 28.6 on the power play, 76%, not a uh, rather pedestrian mark on the PK. Florida, on the other hand, only 15% on the power play and a rather poor 63%. I'll tell you, if that 63% holds, I'll feel really good about the outcome of this series. Florida's power play has got to turn it around, too. So special teams look like a big advantage for Toronto. AJ, I'm going to take the Leafs, but I'm saving my comments. I want to hear what you have to say about <laughs> the, the Florida Panthers. So tell me what why I should be worried about this this team. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a pretty uh, pretty solid group in terms of, of offensive uh, producers here. You've got Carter Verhege, Alexander Barkov, and uh, Anthony Duclair on this this top line. A really solid group. Uh, they could shuffle things around if they want. Right now, that's how they're deploying them. Obviously, Matthew Chichuk could be moved to the top line, but we've got him with Sam Bennett and Nick Cousins. Itu Lestarin and Anton Lundell, along with Sam Reinhardt, making up that third line. Eric Stahl, Zach Daub, Colin White, Giovanni Smith kind of rounding out uh, all their options for the fourth line. They are without Ryan Lomberg. He was downgraded to week to week. For sure, probably going to miss the first two games. Could be longer there. And I think that, you know, the thing with this uh, this forward group is they're just really uh, – you know, they, they've got some star power throughout the lineup, as I mentioned, to Chuck, 11 points, Verhage with eight, Barkov with six, Reinhardt and Bennett both with five. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, I agree with your concerns about special teams. I think they need to do better than they have been. Um, but five on five, this is a really good team. Uh, and they've got some point producers on the back end this uh, you know, maybe could be a, a strength for them. I mentioned earlier, Brandon Montour, 
five goals, three assists, second most points on the team uh, from a defensive position. Gustav Forsling with three points. Uh, obviously, if they get Aaron Ekblad going, he hasn't he hasn't had any points so far in the six games. But if he starts um, putting some points together, could be a real uh, problem for them. So they've got Forsling and Ekblad as the top pairing. Montour just pairing up really well with Mark Stahl. Uh, Mark Stahl, maybe a guy that some people thought towards the end of his career, maybe wouldn't find somewhere this season even, but has formed a solid, uh, you know, defensive partnership with Montour to let Montour get up into the play. Racco Gouish, Josh Maher, uh, and Casey Fitzgerald, all options for the third pairing. Obviously, the question mark is what to do between the pipes here for uh, for the Florida Panthers. Uh, they came into the postseason. Alex Lyon was huge for them, having some great numbers. Uh, then in the playoffs, goes one and two. Nine oh two was the save percentage. A lot of people have given Bobrovsky a ton of credit for um, them winning this series. I'm not so sure about that, to be perfectly honest with you. You look at his overall numbers, they're actually worse. Uh, a sub-900 save percentage, goals against average is creeping up towards four, um, but he got a lot of help. I mean, you look, his first game, uh, let's see, that would have been game game four was the loss. He gave up five goals in that one, three in the next, five in that 7-5 thriller, then three uh, in the series clincher here. So uh, his numbers aren't great. Uh, in fact, we're showing that Alex Lyon uh, most likely going to get the start tonight. He was the first goalie off at practice. And usually over at Rotowire, we do use that to confirm. But uh, in this scenario, we're uh, taking a more you know cautious approach with uh, confirming netminders right now. And so we are saying probably Alex Lyon goes tonight but obviously Bobrovsky in the mix here as well so that's probably the weakest part of this team in, in my opinion which is certainly not a recipe for success but they've been able to get wins even without um, fantastic net mining so we'll have to see how they hold up against Toronto uh, Paul take it away well you know what I'll, I'll finish with a note on Florida's net mining it's not a surprise to me at all the turning Alex line because he played in the last two games against the Maple Leafs this season and looked very good in both of the games. They were low-scoring affairs, Florida winning 3-2 to two and losing 2-1, to one, both games winding up in overtime. Uh, the previous two were Bobrovsky specials where he gave up a total of 11 goals in the two games, and that's what what I've expected from him in the head-to-head matchups over the last few years where the Leafs have really taken him to the woodshed repeatedly. So it, not a surprise to me at all to see Alex Lyon in the Nets, but he's short on experience, and I wonder if this bigger stage with a lot of the bright lights on in Toronto will uh, lead to a different outcome for him. I'm kind of expecting that a little bit tonight. And a uh, little bit of a disappointment on a personal level that Ryan Lombard is out of lineup. He's a guy that's a Richmond Hill native, so uh, you know that he would have been up for the games in Toronto. So I'm sure he's disappointed as well. So I thought I'd mention that uh, in, in the sign-off on the notes. And I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that they built the two scoring lines around uh, their two-star players anchoring each line, Barkov on the first line and Matthew Kachuk on the second line. But they've got able partners in Bennett on the second line and Carter Verhage had an outstanding year partnered with Barkov on the first line. So I like the depth on the first two lines. But beyond that, uh, Sam Bennett, uh, Sam Reinhardt on the third line might represent the only scoring threat that I would be concerned about in the bottom six here. 
the, the same cannot be said about the Maple Leafs, and that's why I really feel good about this matchup, AJ. They made a real astute couple of astute moves at the trade deadline, acquiring Ryan O'Reilly to stretch this offense and give them three greats, uh, greats, uh, great depth at center with Austin Matthews and John Tavares. That in the point per game in the first round, uh, Ryan O'Reilly was right there as well, uh, tipping the scales. Matthew, Willie Nylander and Matthew Nyes round out the first line. Matthew Nyes had a, an outstanding debut in the first round, and you consider he was on the ice for all three overtime goals, in fact, for the Leafs, and didn't look out of place. This guy's a big body, and we're waiting for his first NHL goal, but he's done so many things right that uh, the coach has said he's not coming out of the lineup anytime soon, and now he finds himself with two of the Leafs' signature players on the top line. That allows them to stretch this lineup uh, with Tavares going with Mitch Marner, who is the best player on this team for my money. Uh, he's a highlight reel waiting to happen. And I think he's he's got to be fe- feeling free and easy, he and Matthews particularly, after winning that first round. So I expect another gear from each of these two guys who were outstanding in the first round. Callie Aaroncroft solidifies that second line with his defensive conscience coming off a career-best 20-goal season. So that affords them the opportunity to really stretch the roster with, as I said, with O'Reilly, at the third-line pivot role, and then Michael Bunting, who had his trouble with the suspension in the first round, but coming off a, a pretty good offensive season with 23 goals and another 50-plus points on the regular year. And then Noel Achari fills in the third line with uh, his physical presence, and this guy's got a nose for the net, and uh, he doesn't mind the heavy going and, and will probably lead the Leafs in hits as he has most nights in the season, and he kind of leveled that that field with Tampa I thought that was going to be a big issue and he really filled a void and and really leveled the physicality uh, department in that series and it was a large part in the outcome outcome of that set in the fourth line they have uh, David Kampf and uh, Zach Aston Reese along with Alex Kerfoot uh, some speed some toughness and a really good face-off man really good components of that fourth unit they're all healthy too which is the bonus then on defense They've got nine guys to choose from. They've settled on six finally, and uh, I'm really pleased that they finally gave Justin Hall a seat in the press box because he was on the ice for 75% of the goals that Tampa scored in that series. And so uh, Timothy Lilligren gets a chance to be the partner on the third line for Mark Giordano. And I like the fact that uh, that he's in this spot. He's got an offensive upside and he's, he's over 200 pounds, so he can handle the physical going as well. So I like that pairing. Giordano, one of the leading shot blockers in hockey. In fact, I think he leads all time in hockey history. So it gives him a good look on the power penalty kill. You'll see that unit. And Luke Shen had an outstanding first round, AJ. I didn't expect that they would play him as much as they did. He played a physical role and uh, lived up to his nickname, one of the better ones I've heard in recent times. I don't know if you know, but they call him the human eraser. And he <laughs> rubbed, rubbed out a lot of Tampa forwards in that first series. The linchpin offensively of this group, Morgan Riley, might have been the team's MVP in the first round and finally looks healthy, had a few goals, had uh, double digits in points. I expect more of the same in, in, in this set as a guy who is the linchpin on the power play in the quarterbacking role. Then a very key uh, decision that at first I didn't like, but I've kind of grown to like it. Jake McCabe and TJ Brody, maybe the two best defensive defensemen on the roster, partnered on that top pairing, and you can bet Matthew Tuchuk is going to see a lot of them. They went a long way to stifling the top line in Tampa, and I think they're they're charged with doing the same thing with the Tuchuk line in this series. In the Nets, this is Ilya Samsonov's puck, and he gets to play with it every night, I think. 
And Joseph Wall will be the second guy, but I don't expect to see him unless disaster strikes. Matt Murray's coming along for the ride, deemed healthy to join the club, but uh, playing out the string as a third liner here. I wonder what his future holds. But Samsonov has really earned a big payday, and uh, as a restricted free agent in the offseason, that's another story for another time. But uh, he was very effective, and I look for more of the same from him. So it will come as no surprise to any of our listeners, AJ. I'm going to go first, but because I'm picking Toronto in six, I think they win it on the road. Uh, again, uh, this team is not afraid to play on the road, and they showed it in the first series. But uh, I'd like to see their home record improve because I'm going to be going to the games in Toronto. I want to celebrate some victories, so I hope they throw in a couple for me there. So uh, I think it's going to be a Leafs in six. I'm curious to know why you're going to pick Florida. I know you are. <laughs> Just because it's no fun if I pick Toronto. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the that is partially true. But, uh, you know, you look at the regular season series, three games that were in overtime between these two clubs. You look at Toronto in the first round, multiple overtime games, a little bit of puck luck going Florida's way. They've got all the momentum after knocking off Boston. Um, so they're, they're playing really good right now. If they can figure out the goaltending – uh, I think they're going to be a hard matchup for Toronto. So I'm going to take the Panthers in seven. So we disagreed on all four series in this. It's going to be very interesting to tally up the results. Uh, we're but... both on Vegas. Okay. Sorry. So we agreed on one. We didn't agree on too many in the first round, maybe one or two there too. So the, the ratio of, of those picks is, and the outcomes is consistent, at least for a second round. But uh, I hope I'm a happy chappy when we next convene to talk about this round and preview the third round of the NHL playoffs. AJ, uh, you have any final thoughts in the, before we sign off? Well, I want to get your thoughts on some rumblings, uh, rumors that I've heard is that a potential candidate for the Penguins GM job would be Kyle Dubas, who is out of contract at the end of the year. Um, one of the highlights that I've heard is with the Penguins and with under uh, Fenway Sports Group, he would have, you know, all the, the power and all the say as to how to build that team as opposed to his current situation uh, where he's got, you know, Brendan Shanahan there looking over his shoulder. So um, Kyle Dubas to the Penguins after the season over as the GM. What do you think, Paul? I'll worry about next year at the end of the postseason, AJ, <laughs> but I have to think that Kyle Dubas is, is wanting to see how this season plays out, first of all, and uh, it'd be pretty, he'd be pretty attractive, I guess, with a Stanley Cup ring on his finger to all teams in the league, but I think his loyalty remains here to the fact that Shanahan gave him the opportunity, and I wouldn't be surprised if they already have a deal in place. There's been some rumblings locally that that is the situation, and the the, the first-round victory was cinched at all. So I'm not as concerned about those rumors as you might expect because of the little tidbit that I just shared. But uh, I know you're just trying to, to get my goat, put my hair on end. It's not going to work today. I'm feeling pretty good, and uh, that's where I'll stop <laughs> stop you short and i'll thank our listeners for tuning in to another episode of rotor wires podcast with statsman and aj please note that our next episode will come your way when the second round concludes and we will preview the third round the conference final matchups when they are known as always we remind you that we're here to help you with all things relating to your enjoyment of fantasy hockey so we encourage you to send your comments or quizzes questions on twitter where you can follow me paul bruno at statsman 22 and you can follow aj at aj schultz 24 so long everybody